Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. So this parable of grace um, that we see lived out um, in baptism and, and other ways comes from Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 32. It is quite lengthy, but you'll recognize it. It says, Then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but I am here dying of hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly! Bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this, but when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of God for all of God's people. Let us say, thanks be to God. Would you stand? So I got here this morning. Lindsay had woken up early to cook breakfast for me. There was a dry erase, happy Father's Day done early that morning. But I got here in my normal routine and I completely forgot that it was Father's Day. Completely forgot until Carrie Lynn was doing children's time at traditional and like, mentioned it and I thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe because fatherhood has been like, it has been one of the greatest, if not the greatest experience of my life and possibly the most joyfully frustrating experience of my life, but one of the greatest experiences of my life. But I have discerned in kind of my evaluation of fatherhood that I think I am a product perhaps of, of my generation or perhaps of, of a new generation of fathers. Um, I don't know if I could have been a dad like in the 1950s. 
for example, um, if you've ever heard the expression, wait until your father comes home. Um, my kids, that would have no effect on whatsoever. And I'm not saying I'm not involved in a discipline. I used to be kind of good time Charlie and just the fun dad. And then my wife, you know, reminded me that it takes two parents to discipline children. And so I've been involved in discipline and I'm fine with doing that. But I also recognize that my children have no fear of me whatsoever. Maybe they'll grow into it. I hope not. I'm glad that they have no fear of me whatsoever. Um, my motto, the motto that more applies to me in terms of, of fatherhood and my relationship with my children is that other expression, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Um, and I'm not talking about physical discipline or spanking or anything. I'm talking simply about they act up, there's a consequence, I take away technology for a day, and I hate myself for it. I don't know if anybody else feels this way or not, but it's like you know they need the consequence, you know they need the boundary, you know they need the discipline, and then your heart breaks the entire time. We're gearing up to go to some fun event or some fun festival, and then they're fighting with each other, and so we have to say, nope, we're not doing that anymore. You've got to suffer the consequence for your actions. And then the entire time I'm sitting there just hurting because they didn't get to have that experience they were looking for because I want the best for my children. I want them to experience all the fun and all the joy and all the good things and experience the, the breath of humanity and life that is out there. And every time I have to take that away and make them suffer, it hurts. Like it physically hurts me when I see them miss out on something. And now some of it is just this concrete thinking of a child, right, is they're not thinking about the long-term effects of life. They're thinking about, I wanted a chocolate bar, and I didn't get the chocolate bar right away. But it still affects me in some level. It still affects me in that I just don't want them to hurt. I don't want them to miss out. I don't want them to not experience all of the greatest, best things of life, even though sometimes they have to. And again, my kids are great. We don't have to do this a whole often. But I want them to experience the best. And I think this is Part of the story of the prodigal son is a father wanting his children to experience the greatest and the best that life has to offer. And normally we think about this from the absolute amazing grace love that the prodigal son father exhibits. There was a kid who squandered everything. He had to suffer the consequences of his own decisions and live in squalor, go even to be hired by a foreigner cleaning the pigs, which is the lowest job that a Jewish person could have. And we look at this father in just such an amazing, graceful moment of accepting this kid back, not just with, here's some consequences and you'll earn my trust back, but with a party and the family ring and a robe and the fatted calf killed and this massive celebration because it is part of this trio of stories about finding lost things and God rejoicing when lost people are found in the family, the community is restored again. There's a parable in Luke 15 that's the parable of the, uh, sh the lost sheep. And it's, there's a hundred sheep, so many sheep, but one goes missing. And God loves that one to leave the 99 and go find the one. And there's the parable of the 10 coins where there's 10 valuable coins, but they lose one and they forget about the nine to go take care of the one. And then this lost kid who just is one kid amongst two. And the amazing grace of God that God is so excited when things are reunited. God is so excited, so graceful. But what we forget is that there's two people in the story. 
We have to frame the story a little bit. The story starts really as we look back in Luke chapter 14. In Luke 14, 25, it says that there was a whole mob of people from the Galilee region who were following Jesus from town to town, hoping to glean some of the wisdom that he's offering. And we have to imagine this is different from what they've been hearing, that Jesus has a more egalitarian version of life, that even there's not the hierarchy system that had been in existence in every society, but that everybody comes into the kingdom of God, into the community of Christ, with something to offer, with a gift to offer, with something to be important in that situation. And so people from the Galilee region, not as important as Jerusalem or some of the other cities, hear this and they are following, hoping to be a part of something completely different and hanging on every word that he has to say. But in that crowd, we learn there are different people. Because in the crowd of the tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, the interesting part is that the Pharisees are the, what would we label them as now, progressive, open-minded religious officials of Jesus' day. We like to think of them as stick in the mud, but the Sadducees are the ones who say you have to inherit by birth or you have to inherit through wealth the religious positions and that really only the elite of the elite can be involved in worship, be involved in sacrifice, be one with God. The Pharisees are more egalitarian by saying, no, 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 the poor and the lower class people can totally do this, but they also still believe that if you're going to be in union with God, if you're going to do worship, if you're going to do sacrifice, then you have to abide perfectly by all 616 laws of the Torah. And if you aren't, then you're unclean and therefore you don't belong. And so even with their open-mindedness, they're still living in this way of thinking that says there are certain people who belong at Jesus' feet and there are certain people that don't belong at Jesus' feet. There are certain people that should go into the temple and there are certain people that are not worthy of the temple. Those sinners, those tax collectors, those people who are unclean or doing harm to people, they should not be invited in. But Jesus talks about the tax collectors at the end of the story. It says the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all this and they ridiculed him. So he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, every so often, you hear a parable that just really, uh, you see a parable lived out in your own modern life. Um, You see a parable that just makes sense. This is why when we're interpreting Scripture, we talk about our experience vivifying Scripture, that we learn Scripture is true because we experience these in our real lives. And so when I was in high school, um, uh, growing up at First United Methodist Church of Allen, we'd do youth group every Sunday night, and um, we had a a really strong class coming up the senior year. But but fast forward to freshman year, there was a new incoming sixth grader, and I'm going to call him Robbie. And uh, Robbie was um, everything that um, you don't want to be, I guess, as you're growing up in middle school. See, if there are 616 laws that you have to be perfect for for the Pharisees, I feel like there are about 6,016 that you have to abide by in middle school in order to make it into the cool crowd or the popular club or whatever it might be. And so growing up, Robbie didn't fit those categories in 1996. Um, He was short. He was squat. He had acne. He had a bad haircut. Like, he didn't fit those physical qualifiers, but also— Robbie was a compulsive liar. Robbie would uh, gossip about what we talked about in youth group and our prayer requests. He would take that out into the community and gossip to other people about us. Robbie would TP our houses to try and look cool. Robbie stole his dad's car one time, drove it through a fence and into a neighbor's pool. You can understand why Robbie wasn't our favorite person in the world. 
And maybe you might even empathize with why Robbie sat by himself every Sunday night at snack supper during youth group at a church that was supposed to be welcoming to all people. Robbie was not our favorite person. Maybe you can understand why. But the prodigal son story has two people. Robbie is very clearly in this story. I think you can already tell the no good, down and out, cast aside, good for nothing. There are two people in the prodigal son story. There's the prodigal son and then there's the elder son. And we got to fulfill the role of the elder son because we were, I say we were the cool kids. We were the cool kids in church, right? As soon as we went down in high school, our pecking order dropped a little bit. But um, we, we were the cool kids in church, and we were leaders in the youth group all the way from ninth grade. And um, one of my best friend's dads, his name is Steve, Steve Elliott was his name. Um, Steve did not see Robbie the same way that we did. Because um, every Sunday night when Robbie was sitting by himself, and we were probably making fun of him um, from a distance, and when we'd hear one of his tall tales, we'd scoff and laugh and make fun of him. But Steve had a different mindset. See, Steve would get up from wherever he was sitting already or leave his volunteer station, and he would go put himself right across from Robbie at the table every single Sunday for three years this happened. And Steve had a great way of just being jovial, no matter who he was around. He would, he would invite us over for hamburgers at his house all the time. He was just this jovial kind of guy. And so uh, Robbie would tell one of his stories about slaying a dragon in math class while with blindfolded with one arm tied behind his back while also winning the Indy 500 or something like that. And um, Steve would just laugh. I mean, he would just crack up. He would laugh and almost at an uncomfortable level to where then Robbie would kind of start laughing too. And then Steve would abruptly stop laughing and say, all right, Robbie, tell me the true story. And it would be a far less interesting version, but also more vulnerable and authentic. And Steve had this way of connecting with Robbie that no one else did, where Robbie would open up and felt comfortable enough being himself and feeling valuable in who he was that he didn't have to create these fabrications to be cool anymore. And so I remember going from junior year into senior year during that summer, um, we got the phone call from my friend Zach, who was Steve's son, and, and Zach said, hey, uh, my dad wants to have everyone over for burgers tonight. And I said, like the whole youth group? And he goes, no, 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 just the senior class. And I said, even better, right? Because we don't have to deal with the freshmen. And so uh, senior class went over, and um, we're expecting Steve's great hamburgers. Walk in the front door. There's nothing cooking. And uh, Steve sits us down at the kitchen table, and we all sit there. And Steve proceeds to read us the riot act. Um, that riot act is called the Sermon on the Mount. It comes from Matthew chapter 5 through 7. He read the entire thing about how you were supposed to love your enemy and welcome the stranger and do good and outdo one another in honor and all of these things that the church is supposed to be about. And yet he pointed out very clearly that we were not doing for the prodigal son. We were not doing for Robbie very well at all. And guess who all went to sit by Robbie the very next Sunday? We made it work, right? We made it work for that year, and we ended up having a decent, good relationship. And you could also see Robbie's behavior changed a little bit to where he felt he didn't feel the need to do those things anymore because he was welcome, because he was accepted in this way. There are, there are two people in the story. There is the good-for-nothing, down-and-out, not following the rules, rejecting God, you could say, you know, rejecting everything that God stands for, prodigal son running away, but there's also the elder son, and, and in the story, you know, the story is to highlight God's grace and how God loves when lost things are found. But it also forces us to be the parent in the situation to say, who's worse? Who's, who's worse? The, the younger son 
who goes and asks for his inheritance while his dad is still living. In, in Deuteronomy 21, it lays out the inheritance structure and that basically when your dad is too old or feeble to take care of the estate or if they are dying, then the older son gets two-thirds of the inheritance, the younger son gets one-third of the inheritance. The story makes it sound like this dad is viable enough to run down the road and celebrate and throw a massive party. And so what this younger son is essentially doing is going to his dad and saying, I wish you were dead. I don't want this life anymore. I don't want your life anymore. Give me everything that is mine, and I'm going to leave and go, I, I wish you were dead. And you have to imagine being the parent in the situation, how awful that must be. And, and then he goes off to do his own thing, to live by his own rules. And the Bible doesn't just say he went and he had a good time or he gambled. It says he squandered his life in dissolute living. And as I mentioned before, he is hired by a foreigner, which is not a great thing in the Jewish community, and he is cleaning the pigs, which is an even worse thing in the Jewish community. He has hit rock bottom to where he is so far away from the life he knew that he is desperate, that he will do anything. He will become a servant, a slave to his father again, if it means he can even have a shred of the pig scraps. So imagine you're the parent here, and you've got this good-for-nothing son of yours. But on the flip side, the story's about two people. Because the elder son has been there the whole time. And he got two-thirds of the inheritance. Which means that when the younger son comes back and the father throws him this lavish party and is so excited and the son gets whim that there is this party thrown in just this one moment, he can't see past the candy bar to see the bigger picture. He's saying, you didn't throw me a party. You didn't do any of this for me. Now, remind Two-thirds of the inheritance is basically like saying you are set for life. You will have the estate. You will have the workers. You will have the wealth. You will have everything in this. But you just didn't get one measly party. And the son is so upset, so mad about this. And, you know, I didn't even realize until I was reading the Scripture, because we make a big deal about the father running to the prodigal son. The elder son doesn't come to the party. The father walks out of the party to him, too. The other son wants nothing to do with it because he can't see the forest of the trees of what he already has. And when the father comes out, he says to the older son, he says, Son, you've been with me all along. Everything I have is yours. At your disposal, you might not get one party, but you've got something even better. I remember having a conversation, some of you all know Julie Stelly, she's our lay leader here, and um, Julie and I were in a group, we were sharing kind of our church background stories, and, and maybe you've been in this situation where someone, you know, you're going around the circle and someone says, you know what, I used to be an alcoholic, and then I you know, gambled away my entire life savings, but then I found Jesus, and ever since then I've won the lottery, or you know, something like it's this grand story of knowing exactly this time, and you were down on your luck, and then all of a sudden God pulls you up, and and it was like the first five people all had those amazing stories. And then Julie was there. And for those of you who know Julie, um, I, I guarantee you, you would say that Julie is a faithful follower of God who exudes the joy of Christ. She is like Jesus' cheerleader out in the world. And she literally would call herself that. And, and she comes to her story and she says, well, my story is pretty boring. I grew up in church and I've always been in church and I've just tried to do what God wants me to do this whole time. And you know, I kind of feel bad about that. 
And afterward, I, I grabbed Julie and I said, Julie, my faith story is that I was basically born in church and I've been there ever since. Isn't it great that we've just kind of gotten this experience the entire time? Like, yeah, we don't have the party, but we've been there. Everything that God has for us has been there, and it's there for us. And the other son is having a hard time recognizing this, because even while the younger son is just apologetic and repentant and trying to get back into the Father's good graces, he's admitting all of this living that he's been. The other son's in the background, and maybe you're the oldest child who's done this when the younger kid's in trouble. You're like, and don't forget about the prostitutes. Right? Don't forget about this detail. Mom, Dad, did you see that happen over there? He's desperate to recognize that he is so much better than they are. So much more in control. So much more faithful. So imagine you're the parent here. Who's worse? The good-for-nothing son that disobeys everything, and by Deuteronomy 21, you have no right, or you have every right to just wash your hands of them and leave them aside. Or the elder son who cannot believe that you are going to eat with tax collectors and sinners. That's what the Pharisees said to Jesus before he told all these stories. He's hanging out with all these people who are just looking for hope. Who just want a place at the table. They want to be a part of something great. And the Pharisees tell Jesus, I can't believe you are eating with tax collectors and sinners. And it makes me wonder when Jesus went to dinner at the Pharisees' house several times, if they ever thought that about themselves. So one of the things in Christian history that has happened as we see through the letters that Paul writes to these churches is that Jewish Christians and, and Gentile Christians are constantly trying to outdo one another as to who is better. I have new faith and I am redeemed by God through faith. Well, I've been here all along and I know all the rules and you should succumb to what I have to do. And eventually the church um, became nationalized and we started putting borders around faith and, and cultures around faith. And so all of a sudden it didn't become just about your ethnicity, but it became just even about land mass. And it became who's across the border and who's not in the border and who has this culture and who doesn't have this culture and who looks one way or who doesn't look one way and who behaves one way and who doesn't behave another way, even though everyone is seeking after the same God. Throughout Christian history, we have done a really good job of trying to take Robbie and put him over in the corner, but we've also done a really good job of taking the Pharisees and trying to put him in another corner. On some level, when we're talking about the two stories of the prodigal son, on some level, all of us have a little bit of the Pharisees in us and all of us have a little bit of the prodigal in us. On some level, all of us are judgmental and all of us are want away. On some level, we are all in need of grace on both sides. And the beauty is that the father in this story runs down the road to the, one, the no good and runs out the tent to get to the judgmental and to bring him back in the party and say, none of this matters because I love you both. I want you to be at the party together. I want you to celebrate the grace that we have for each other. I want you to look in the eyes of the other person and know that they are my beloved child, regardless of what you think about them. And I believe if Jesus were here and he told this story, he would say, please stop kicking out people in my name. Please stop chastising people and making them not part of the circle of grace in my name. Please don't throw away those who I am desperately chasing. Desperately running down the road. Desperately inviting to the party. Don't throw those people away. They might be the worst of the worst, and I love them. And they might be the worst of the worst, and I love them too. The prodigal son has 
two sides to every story. But the main point for if you are the judgmental or you are the no good is that God has chased you to get you to come to the party. Don't turn down the invitation yourself. And don't take the invitation away from anybody else. Let's pray. Gracious God, for the times that we have tried to close the doors, when we look at the no goods around us, and we just want to lock ourselves in. God, kick down our doors of our hearts and our minds so we might see your grace at work. And God, when we have not only wandered from you, but ran, when we have found ourselves amongst the pigs, help us remember that you're not just waiting for us, but you are running toward us, and you already have in your son, Jesus, your Holy Spirit coursing through the neighbor who's been loving you. And so God, Open us to grace once more. May we never squander what we've been given. But may we not take it for granted either. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I want to invite the kids. Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today and let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.